welcome to Good Patron, production of UTR Media. I am your host, Garrett Godfrey, and on this show, I'll explore what it means to be a good patron, asking how each of us can be a good patron of the bands and musicians we appreciate. I'm glad you're here, so stick around, because we have got some exploring to do. If you saw the episode title, you already know who we'll be covering, but here's the rundown. I'm covering campaigns and pre-orders for music by Jay Lind, Brian Duncan, and the Choir's Campaign for a vinyl reissue of the Fantastic Project at the Foot of the Cross, with links to all those in the show notes. But this is a special double-length episode because I've got two fantastic interviews for you as well. So we're going to change things up. We're going to do the campaigns first, then my interview with reporter, writer, and podcaster Maria Bear about an article she wrote for Christianity Today, and then my interview with musician, singer-songwriter, podcaster, and writer Chase Tremaine about a recent article he wrote. Then we'll have something very different for the Good Patron Challenge this episode. But as you might guess, I want to kick things off by telling you about our Spotlight Campaign. Way back in 1992, the guys from the choir put out an amazing alternative worship album titled At the Foot of the Cross, Volume 1, Clouds, Rain, Fire. But it was more than just Derry and Steve. Greg Flesh from Daniel Amos was also involved, as were Phil Keggy, Mark Hurd, Michael Rowe, Michael Knott, Victoria Williams, and a host of others. And this album brought us the classic song, Beautiful Scandalous Night. In fact, that song helped pave the way for the collaboration God of Wonders. The album has never been available on vinyl, and the CD has long been out of print, but the choir have launched a Kickstarter campaign to remaster and re-release the album on vinyl and CD with a companion art book and more, just in time for the album's 30th anniversary. Here is a clip of the track, Beautiful Scandalous Night, so you've got an idea what it'll sound like. Follow Christ to the holy mountain Sinners sorry and wrecked by the fall Cleanse your heart and your soul In the fountain that flows For you and for me and for all At the wonderful, tragic, mysterious tree On that beautiful, scandalous night You and me were atoned by His blood And forever washed white On that beautiful, scandalous night For $13, you get the remaster download in WAVE and MP3 format, as well as a bonus commentary. $15 gets you the CD and downloads with commentary. For $30... You get the album in lava-colored vinyl, plus those downloads. And then they've got more options like having those signed, an art and lyric book, sheet music, even an engraved wooden box with all those goodies inside. So head over to Kickstarter and search for At the Foot of the Cross. This campaign closes Thursday, December 16th. Do y'all remember maybe a year ago in episode 32 when I talked about Jay Lynn's campaign for his upcoming album, The Land of Canaan? Probably not. A, a lot's happened in the last year. Well, the album got made and is out. In fact, here's a clip of the song Lean Into It from that album. 
that album it's it's not on vinyl yet so he's got a couple ways to do a pre-order for that record the land of canaan to come out on vinyl you can pre-order at crates which is q-r-a-t-e-s for 25 dollars, or by supporting him on patreon so we'll have the link in the show notes now while we're still on the topic of albums coming out on vinyl i just want to give you a heads up there will likely be a pre-order kicking off in 2022 for a remastered vinyl pressing of the LSU album, This Is The Healing, which originally came out in 91 on Michael Knott's record label Blonde Vinyl. Here is a clip of that title track, This Is The Healing, so you've got an idea what that will sound like. This is the No details on when that pre-order will go live or cost yet, but be sure I will keep you posted. And I want to thank Ben in the Crowdfunding Christian Music Facebook group for sharing about this next one. Brian Duncan is working on a Christmas album. In fact, what I believe, if I'm doing my math right, will be his third Christmas album. He put out a Christmas album, uh, Christmas is Jesus, back in 95, then 10 years later put out a Neho Soul Christmas, and now has launched an Indiegogo campaign to help him put out Brian Duncan and Friends Christmas Voices. Here is a clip of one of the songs that will be on that album, I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day. the bells on Christmas Day, the old familiar carols play, and wild and sweet the words repeat, the peace on earth, good will to men. $16 for the download of the album, $22 for the CD, and he's got some of his earlier albums available for perks as downloads and CDs as well. So head over to Indiegogo and search for Brian Duncan. This campaign closes January 8th. Now, I mentioned that I have two fantastic interviews for you. The first is a conversation with a writer about a piece she wrote on crowdfunding and patronage for Christianity Today magazine this summer. Coming up right after this quick break. This UTR Media podcast is brought to you by the new Advent album from Jonathan and Emily Martin. Tell me the story, the one that never grows old. Oh, the mystery, the God so loved the world. Tell Me the Story by Jonathan and Emily Martin is 10 original songs focused on the birth of the Savior. The light has come. 
Tell Me the Story by Jonathan and Emily Martin is available now on Spotify and all major music platforms. This podcast is sponsored by the latest album from singer-songwriter Melanie Waldman. Songs by Melanie Waldman is a collection of worshipful original songs aimed to draw you close to the Savior. Find Psalm Songs by Melanie Waldman on Spotify and all major music platforms. Hey, this is Dave Trouts, and here at UTR Media, we know that music is fun. It's fun to talk about, it's fun to listen to, it's fun to talk to the artists, but fun is not our motivating factor. We are inspired when lives are changed. We got this note recently from Eli in Gresham, Oregon. He said, quote, UTR has helped me easily turn my perspective to the Father rather than my situation or struggles. I am an addict and listening to this music helps me not think of the compulsive actions I could do and instead brings peace through the truth of the lyrics I hear through UTR Media. Thank you so much. We actually get notes just like Eli's all throughout the year and we owe the gratitude to our UTR support team. Some good folks have come alongside our ministry and have generously supported with a recurring monthly donation. And we invite you to join this team during Buildathon. Now through the end of the year, we invite you to give a one-time end-of-the-year gift or join our recurring monthly support team and help this ministry thrive in the year ahead. UTR Media is a 501c3 tax-deductible organization, and you can begin your support by heading to utrmedia.org. Thanks so much. Welcome back. This summer, I had gotten my July-August episode of Christianity Today magazine, and I was excited to see an article titled, Patrons Saints. Christians turned to Patreon, Substack, and Kickstarter. And it was a great read. And there was a lot there that I wanted to share with you. And I figured I'd probably just highlight a section for a future podcast episode. And then I heard the Gourmet Music Podcast special episode about the Josh Garrels album, Love and War and the Sea in Between. And I heard clips of Josh talking over 10 years ago about crowdfunding. And I felt like some of the themes between the article and that clip intersected. And I decided to see if I could get on a Zoom call with the author of that article and talk about it and talk about Josh Carroll's clip. The author of that article is Maria Bear, a reporter, writer, and podcaster who's written for Christianity Today, World Magazine, and the Gospel Coalition. She was kind enough to provide us with a special link that will give you access to read the article. And she was kind enough to get on that Zoom call with me a couple weeks back. Here is my conversation with Maria Bear. So I asked you on the podcast to talk about an article about crowdfunding and patronage that you wrote for Christianity Today magazine for the July-August issue. But first, I have to ask, you earned your degree in journalism. You regularly write for Christianity Today, World Magazine, The Gospel Coalition. You co-host the Breakpoint This Week podcast. 
what led you to dig deeper into crowdfunding and patronage and write this article? Oh, that's a great question. Well, um, you know, I'm, I've been an avid music listener, which sounds like a strange thing to say, because I, I think most people hopefully would say something similar, but have always been into that scene and loved music my whole life. I used to play little coffee shop shows when I was in college. But um, so I started noticing the trend on the trend on that side of things. Um, but I also have noticed it in particular in the journalism world as well. So especially in the past, I would say probably three to four years, we've seen a lot of journalists and writers, including some really big names that have left big platforms and headed this direction. So whether it's Substack, which is seems to be the most popular one, or Patreon, you know, for podcasters and that sort of thing, people seem to be really gravitating toward that. Usually, I think the biggest reason given is that they're struggling with the editorial oversight in whatever big platform or network that they were previously a part of. So they're heading that direction. And so it just has raised a lot of uh, raised a lot of questions for me. I was curious about how it worked generally. And, you know, especially like whether people were were really, really making money, you know, not to be crass about it or anything, but I was super curious about that. You know, are people really making, you know, living wages on these sorts of platforms? And I'm, I've always been fascinated in ways that our, our culture changes without us knowing about it or without us thinking about it too much. And I think this sort of thing has a big potential. And I think we're already seeing it to change the way the music industry works and the way journalism works and the publishing industry in ways that we probably won't fully realize until years and years later. And then we'll look back and, and see what it did. Um, but I just kind of wanted to dig into that. Uh, and my editor was excited about the idea as well. So we just kind of went from there. So I, I wanted to interact with you a bit as I go through the article in front of me. Yeah. You highlighted how everything from Kickstarter to Patreon have been more significant for artists and writers, but especially more uh, recently as events like concerts and conferences have been canceled. Um, and I know you pointed out for a lot of folks, even with patronage and crowdfunding, it hasn't really fully funded their work or completely paid their bills, but it looks like you've spoken to a number of writers and artists and podcasters. Are you seeing in general, it is making a significant impact? It's definitely making an impact. I I think what I found was that the people who are seeing the really major success on those platforms are people who had some sort of following or name recognition before jumping onto them. So a lot of times these platforms, like uh, I think I included, you know, the mission statement of Kickstarter, which was, you know, sort of an ideological, like we're going to, you know, put the reins back into the hands of the artists and we're going to get out of this whole like elite culture makers kind of world and everybody can be anything and that sort of ideal world kind of stuff. But I think the reality is a little bit different where it's, it's not too much different from the, um, you know, there are certainly significant differences in how, you know, a product goes from start to finish, but there's not a huge difference in terms of uh, who finds success on these platforms as opposed to the more traditional publishing methods. And uh, I think that makes sense why. I mean, anybody can start a website. The question is, can you get people to come look at it? And the way you achieve that hasn't changed. You know, the the medium might, but the, um, you know, the, the PR side of it, the marketing side of it is still required you know, to get that, that part of it out there. So, um, I didn't, I didn't find anyone who had sort of necessarily, I I think you could find the odd person here or there who maybe went viral with something, but I didn't speak to anyone for this particular piece who had started 
you know, from scratch, like had not done any traditional publishing or music recording. And then using these platforms had, you know, gained a following big enough to support a product. It was more people who were using this as, you know, sort of side income or as a side project sort of thing, or people, you know, like Carmen, who I mentioned before he passed the the Christian artist who, you know, everybody knew before he went into this and then he utilized Patreon. And I think is still one of the largest grossing Patreon uh, accounts of all time in the app's history, which is pretty cool. Or sorry, it wasn't Patreon, it's was Kickstarter. And it was, it was shocking. Yeah, me. I know. Yeah. Well, and so because of what this podcast is about, I've had artists kind of contact me and say, mm-hmm. you know, can you either take a look at my campaign before I go live or can you give me some advice about crowdfunding or whatever? Mm-hmm. And the number one thing I start out with is the, the first part of crowdfunding is crowd. Like if there's not a crowd, there's no funding. Right. Like it, it kind of hinges on there has to be some kind of crowd. You're, you know, you're not going to just hang your shingle on Kickstarter unknown and people just flock to throw their money at you because you want to make an album and I can't even hear what it's going to sound like. Like right. that, that will not happen. That, that will fail. But do you see for the, the folks who had kind of already been established and had some support, do you see more folks stepping up over the last year or, or did you even see any trending on that? Yeah, I certainly think during the pandemic for sure. And that you can't divorce the two. They're certainly related. So one of the accounts I talked about was the Holy Post podcast, which is Phil Reicher and Sky Jathani. And they, they'd been going for four years or so, I think before the pandemic started. But when people suddenly couldn't do live events, you know, and that means they couldn't sell tickets to live events or they couldn't do concerts or, you know, I don't know that Holy Post was doing live events before then, but certainly the pandemic turned people obviously inward in terms of they're at home. They're looking at their computers more. They're not able to go out to be entertained. They're looking for something inside. So that turned a lot of people to, um, to platforms like this. And I think that was clear. So a lot of, their their revenue, I think, um, went up pretty steadily during the pandemic. Uh, another writer I spoke to who doesn't, you know, make a whole lot on this platform, but enough. Uh, she talked about the way that the pandemic had been sort of a, a had she had seen an increase in her support from over the pandemic. And, you know, what that's directly attributable to is hard to say, but I think it's certainly reasonable to guess that because people again were were stuck at home and, and that sort of thing that that had a big effect on it so i don't know if the, you know the, these sites would have seen that sort of increase without the pandemic they might have but for better or worse it i think it has happened for sure i think the phenomenon of live stream concerts had just exploded as well i mean folks that don't tour phoenix but were suddenly like hey thursday night at you know eight eastern we're going to do a live stream with a tip jar pay whatever you want like suddenly I can see them and it's kind of like a house show, but kind of like watching a concert, but it's live. So I feel like I'm having this shared experience with everybody and it's a way I can say, I'm sorry, you can't tour and pay your bills. Can I help out this little way? Um, yeah. Now you had raised a point that crowdfunding in general seems to be a quintessentially Christian. Could you expand on that a bit? Yeah, sure. This was actually something my editor noticed and she, as she and I were talking about the piece is that, you know, the, the concept of it, it feels new because we're using it in a new technological way. You know, we're using the internet to do it now and that sort of thing. But the concept of people patronizing artists goes back millennia. 
you know, and, and in the church um, as well. So you can see in some of the New Testament scriptures, even I think it was uh, James that talks about, you know, being sure that you're still preaching the gospel and not catering to, you know, the people that are your benefactors sort of thing, which if nothing else is just a clue that people were propping up the church or the Jesus movement, you know, or the, the movement of the way or however it would have been known at that time through wealthy benefactors who, you know, because everybody needs, this is just a law of the world which crowdfunding recognizes, you know, artists aren't typically the ones growing their own food, you know, that artists need to be supported by somebody or something else. Usually uh, that doesn't mean that it, what they do isn't valuable, but you know, it was the same for pastors and missionaries in the early church. And it's the same for pastors and missionaries now too, where, you know, let's say a lot of churches sponsor missionaries overseas, And what that means is the church body will raise money or have, you know, periodic offerings to support financially those missionaries and their families. And then, you know, the the missionaries will typically come come home once or twice a year and they're all they'll always give a report on what they've been doing. Here's where your money's been going. Here's, you know, the successes we've seen. Here's some of the challenges. Here's what we need to raise more money for in the future, which is all sort of the the pillars of how crowdfunding works too. You know, there's an expectation that when you give money toward a project, a project or a product that the person making it is giving you updates on what they're doing, or you at least know what the money's going toward and you have some sort of vested interest in what they're creating. And that's how the church, I mean, even the church itself beyond missionaries, churches exist largely on the tithes and offerings of their members. You know, they're not, most churches aren't also, you know, uh, selling, I don't know, some kind of goods on the side or growing their own food or living in a commune type thing. So people, give their own money to support the church, to support the pastor. Um, and that's, that's kind of the, the philosophical backbone of crowdfunding too. I acknowledge that in one sense, there's a very transactional, I paid you money, yeah. you give me your album, or I paid you money, you give me your book. Um, I'm just pre-ordering it. But there's also that um, I believe in what you're doing and I want to see it succeed. So I paid for the album, but I'm throwing in an extra whatever that kind of goes back to that live lives of generosity, bear one another's burdens that you'd mentioned in the article. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think too, like we're all, you know, we're not all called to be those missionaries, but we are called to be missional people. And so sometimes that looks like being the one who is financially supporting that missionary. Uh, you know, that we're all called to be part of the different parts of the body of Christ. And sometimes it's through money or financial support. Sometimes it's through doing the physical work yourself. I think that's certainly a, a biblical um, tenet as well. Yeah. Now, you, you also raised the point that by going direct to fans or supporters, the gatekeepers are gone. And if I understood you correctly, you see that as a blessing and a risk. Is that right? For sure. Can you expand on that? Yeah. Um, yeah, that's a great question. And one of the things I think it's possible to look at crowdfunding in a really idealistic way. And again, I, you know, going back to Kickstarter's sort of mission statement, they're certainly selling it as that. Like you, now you have total creative control over what you're doing. Well, I think for every artist, but especially Christians, the next question then is, is what I'm creating good? And should I be creating it? You know, and that is for better or worse, one of the functions of gatekeepers. And so in this sense, I mean, you know, editors or, you know, publishers or producers of music or whoever it might be, those 
people and positions do a lot of good for a product. You know, and one of the women I spoke to for the piece, she's a writer, Hannah Anderson. And she, she wrote that some of her hesitation is that, you know, especially with writing, an editor usually is the one who, you know, helps you clarify your thoughts, um, helps you make sure you're not going down a wrong road. It is the, uh, a sort of second ear or a, a source of accountability for, you know, she's, she gave me a quote that was something like, yeah, you can share your thoughts with everyone now, but should you, <laughs> you know, just cause you can say something and everybody will hear you. Should you say it? Which is probably a question more for Twitter users than crowdfund users. But the principle extends. I, I think that's true. So there's a lot to be said for gatekeepers who maybe don't have the, the right ends in mind or sometimes the temptation to value things like, you know, this needs to have mass appeal and I, you know, for money's sake, and I value that over, you know, the actual product or the... Before I sign you as an author, I need to see how many followers you have. Exactly. And I'm not really so concerned with the content of your writing as I am the marketability of the product. Totally. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. I, I've seen a number of artists kind of having issues with that as well. And that that's the blessing of it is that it's, it's true. E- even though, and now that goes hand in hand with what we were talking about before, which is if you don't already have some sort of following, you're probably not going to get one here. This isn't a PR effort. It's just a production right. effort. At the same time though, there are instances like you're talking about of gatekeeping that does not help the product be better. Um, and so that's the blessing of it, of not having those is that that's, you know, that's one of the positive things, but yeah, it's, it's a double-edged sword for sure. I liked that you raised the distinction between platforms like Kickstarter or Indiegogo, where there's a one-time payment for a specific project right? and platforms like Patreon or Substack that are more just ongoing support. Yeah. I like what you're doing. I just want to see it happen. Um, do you see one gaining ground more than another or being a better fit for some people than others? Yeah, I think certainly in different industries. Um, it, it certainly seems like Kickstarter, for example, is much more popular with musicians or, or films, you know, things that are one kind of extended product, whereas Patreon and Substack tend to be more for writers or podcasts or journalists who are putting out regular content consistently. And I think that that just makes sense for how, how they operate. But I, I don't know that one is necessarily more popular than the other. I guess, you know, the, the numbers, this was something I found doing the story. The numbers are really hard to find, um, which is understandable. But these a lot of these platforms aren't publishing, you know, exactly how much, how many, you know, campaigns they have on their sites or how many much they're bringing in or that sort of thing. So we're kind of playing some guesswork there and just writing through what we were noticing in our own lives. So I I don't know that one is more popular than the other, but it certainly seems like um, different sites cater to different types of projects. Yeah. I I know years ago, I'd been doing a a different podcast about crowdfunding campaigns for Christian music. And when I hit like 50 episodes, I said, I'm going to look back at all the campaigns I'd covered. What percentage of them got fully funded? What percentage of them were on these platforms? And it it feels like there used to be more campaigns for music three years ago than there are today. Like right now we hover somewhere around, I don't know, if you go to Kickstarter right now and go to music, there's probably, you know, 140 to 180, maybe. Usually it's around 150, 160 at a time. And I don't know if they have any kind of throttle on that or if that's just the nature of how it's going these days. Yeah. But um that's interesting. Yeah, it's it's really interesting to see. And and yeah, there are no stats that I see. I mean, you can go today and it's 
we've closed this many campaigns, we've given this much money, we've done this many things, but I don't think it says this percentage of campaigns fully right. funded. Right. Um, do you have a sense that now I'm going to turn it around and ask you, do, yeah. you, do you have any sense of why that would be if there are fewer today than there used to be? I'm not sure. I, I know that for a while there were some artists in 2020, Rachel Wilhelm was one of them who'd said, hmm. uh, with everything that's going on and people struggling the way they are, she didn't feel right sure. coming and saying, could you please give me money for this thing? Yeah. Like it just doesn't seem like the right time to, to bring that up. Um, yeah. But at the same time, she had a, a fantastic project and it was a, about lament and enough people are saying, mm-hmm. no, I, I think this needs to happen now that she's like, okay. So I think there's a, maybe a, an honest humility or hesitance to, to do that right now. Yeah. But in general, I'm not sure for a while it seemed like everybody was trying it. And I, you know, I don't know if it's because more people are going to something like Patreon or Bandcamp. I can even subscribe to somebody's music on Bandcamp and just, you know, they take a regular amount and I get, you know, new music or whatever. Yeah. Um, I don't know if those have, have taken more of a buy. I know when Pledge Music imploded and, you know, a lot of artists lost money, there was suddenly a, a wake up call that like it's not all magic. Yeah. Um, there is some risk to the artists. So. I'm not sure. Yeah, I, I, I wonder too if, if it's more difficult, um, emotionally, I guess, to, to ask for money. I, I think there used to be an aura of mystery around, you know, famous or even semi-famous, well-known musicians and artists that they got where they are because they're that good. You know, like they, they are, they're the cream of what our generation has to offer. And so, um, I wonder if, you know, that, veil kind of being torn now where it's like, well, there's a lot more, there's a lot of luck involved and that sort of thing. But I wonder if because of that, it's harder for artists, specifically musicians to ask for money because it's like a tacit acknowledgement that like, I need your help to do this. This isn't, you know, I'm not swimming in cash money over here, you know, just because I made an album before today. Well, and, and I'm going to, I'm going to ask about this, Later, I've got a little sheet with all my little questions. And, <laughs> but, um, one of the, one of the things is if you go at your own, there are a lot of extra hats you have to wear beyond just, I'm the guy who writes a song. I'm the, the woman who stands on the stage and sings the song. Yeah. I'm, you know, I, I, I've seen artists who say, I love the studio. I just like, I want to write songs and record them. Uh, for the rest of my life and others who say i hate the studio but i love being in front of the crowd but uh, you know some hate the crowd but none of them say like i thrive on having to get the word out about my album you know right. i live for the marketing right. are i i just can't wait to like you know get into the intricacies of how to make it go yeah. like they just want like they're creative you know most of them now some of them might want to do the artwork because they're creative right. and some of them might want to but like in general, most of them are like, I, I'd really like to have a PR department and a marketing team yeah. and a radio servicing group if radio is even a thing anywhere or yeah. somebody who like pushes it to Spotify playlists and oh, says right. like, I just want to go on to the next song I want to write or, yeah. you know, the next tour down the street. So, yeah. Well, you mentioned the risk of stagnation 
for artists and creators that might go down the Patreon route. And I have to confess, I had never really thought of that, mm-hmm. but your explanation about it made sense. Could could you explain that a bit for the listeners? Yeah, I think this is another one of those things that you would think on its face might not be a challenge when you're you get to be, you know, your own editor and producer and you're giving your art directly to your fans or the world. But it turns out it the problem still exists here, even if you're not going the traditional route, which is you start to, if you've built a a base, let's say you've done one successful project and now you have a base and you're going to go back and ask them for something else. A part of you is going to know that they're, they're expecting something at least similar to what you did before. And this goes back to even what you were saying before about, which I love that crowd to do crowdfunding, you need the crowd. And in order to talk to the crowd, you have to give them some idea of what you're going to give them, even if you haven't made the whole project yet. So, you know, you're not going to give money to a musician whom you've never heard play a single note before. So there is certainly, you could understand the temptation to say, well, whatever I do give you has to be recognizable compared to what I gave you last time, because that's, I presume why you're supporting it in the first place. So, Again, this is a problem with traditional marketing, I'm sure, and I'm sure it exists in the traditional, you know, music publishing as we think of it, where, you know, you've got to give your fans what they want and what they want is kind of what they expect from you and what they expect is going to be pretty similar or related to what you did last time, you know, that sort of thing. And, um, you know, art, a lot of artists have successfully evolve and their fans evolve with them. And I, I certainly think that's possible. But again, this is a risk because, if people are using these platforms to do the, to publish things, you know, to achieve the same ends that the traditional publishing would, they're gonna have some of the same challenges, which is this. When you get an audience, you want to keep that audience if you want to keep doing what you're doing. And so there's a risk that, you know, um, it, it actually isn't going to incentivize you to advance. It, it, this is easier maybe to talk about if you're a writer. So you evolve on the way you think about a certain issue or something that's that can be danger that can end a career for a writer you know um or a journalist and uh but that might be the best thing for them and that's also a good thing usually within the human experience is to learn and grow and change your mind and that sort of thing so it you could see how it might not always incentivize that i'm a fan of the band switchfoot and there are some some key albums in their past in their discography where they made pretty hard pivots sure where you know full big lush big sound and the next album much more stripped down much more you know and it's just like i love this one i hated that one oh but then you know or the um you know or or just the opposite well this was my favorite and i wish they would go back to that and this next one's going to be just like that and you know but because they're they're growing they're changing or, or right, they, they come out with, you know, the, um, what was the beautiful letdown, right? And then you're so excited for the next one. You loved it. And then the next one comes out and it's great, but it sounds nothing like it. And you're sort of like, oh, but yeah. you know, I didn't, it, it's hard to define what you want. I don't want another replica of beautiful letdown, but right. You know, I, I want to, to pivot from that to something that I think I sent you a clip of. I recently heard an interview with Josh Carroll's mm-hmm. from like 10 years ago. Crazy. And he was talking about love and war and the sea in between. And he was contemplating at the time, it was really new, the notion of crowdfunding. And he had raised support for that album to be made. And then because of that, he decided 
hey, it's already paid for. I'm just going to give this away. Now, he said, like, I'm not demanding that everybody do this, but this is what I really felt called to do. Yeah. I, I raised funds ahead of time. I'm just going to give this away for a year on noise trade. And that's what he did. But for him, um, he was saying that when you're on a record label, the label needs mass appeal for the big sales to recoup all the expenses and turn a profit. But when he raised funds for the album up front ahead of time, he found that he actually felt more freed up to make the album he felt he needed to make rather than just what he thought might be popular because it's already paid for. Like I don't have to worry about whether the sales are going to recoup or I'm going to end up owing the label when it's over or like a whole lot got returned six months later after the radio didn't like my songs or whatever. Like I'm going to make the album I really feel called to make and it's already paid for. So like it or don't like it, whatever, but this is what I'm called to make. Yeah. You point out there is more freedom that it gives, but you point out that even with crowdfunding, it still doesn't make up for all that the artists or writers might lose by not having a publisher or a sure. record deal. Yeah. We, we hit on some of those things that they might lose out on. Is there anything that you'd add that either on the freedom side or on the kind of what you lose going solo? Well, I think, you know, my, my mind goes in a more philosophical direction here where I, I listened to that interview and was fascinated by that, that you sent with, with Josh Carroll's because in part it was so long ago. Um, but he, he struck me in it and we, ha- we have to take him at his word. You know, I want to give him credit. Like he, I know he meant what he said and I trust that he felt called to make that album. He struck me as pretty idealistic about it though. Yeah. And yeah. what I mean is that he felt called to make that record. Well, a couple things. First of all, the idea that the record company is somehow doing a disservice by needing to recoup. And he didn't necessarily say that explicitly, but you know, there is just a fact of economics there. Like if, if you want the good studio that's souped to the nines and you get all the instruments you want and the best backup vocalists and, you know, the best production team and whatever that costs money because all of those people are educated and that costs them money and the instruments cost money to make, like it just is going to cost money. So to suggest, I, I don't, I balk a little bit at the caricature of like, there's this money grubbing, right. you know, record label in the back that only cares about the bottom line. I mean, if, if they want to, I'm sure there are people like that in the recording industry. And I'm sure that, you know, sometimes the art suffers in service to the money. I'm sure that happens, but it, they also do just generally need to make money in order to, yeah. to make the music. Um, but I also, the, the bigger thing that stuck out to me that Josh Carroll's was saying, and you alluded to it was when he was talking about that, he really felt the freedom to make the album that he was called to make. That is a beautiful part of these platforms. The problem is people who want to make things that they're not called to make or they don't feel called to make it and they just want to get famous or they want something else are also able to use the same platform. So you can't take the good and not accept the bad because it sounded like he put a lot of thought into these songs. And he was, I mean, he mentioned like, I wanted, he, he wanted to give people as a Christian what he thought they needed and yeah. that's a beautiful thing for an artist, but a lot of artists don't think that way at all. And the platform you're talking about, the ability to raise the money on the front end and then give it away for free, that exists for, you know, the crappy or even the nefarious artists as well. 
you know? And so that's the part that I think he might've been overlooking. He was, he was kind of talking about it as I, I think this is, this could really be a Renaissance and Christian art and that sort of thing. And, and again, I think one of the reasons we maybe haven't seen it go that far is because like we said at the outset to be successful on them, you generally have to have had some sort of name recognition or um, prior traditional publishing acumen. Or, or like you mentioned, something clicks and it goes viral. Right. And it, well, how do I make mine go viral? Well, geez, if there was an easy solution for how to go viral, do you think I mean, like, you probably have everybody would be doing chance, that? You have as much chance of that, of something going viral on the internet as you would have being, you know, noticed by a record exec in 2005. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Well, and to your point of the record labels trying to make money, I was a, a fan of Tooth and Nail in the early days. Yeah. And I mean, they got to pay their bills. And if you want all these underground, never heard of them debut artists with, you know, small followings to be able to get a, a CD in the record store, you need a Supertones that goes huge right. and sells Supertones. big. You need a Jeremy Camp that actually finally uh, a label artist that got played on Christian radio and his one project helped pay for all these other 18 right. projects that didn't even break even, but it made enough money. To, to cover for a lot of other stuff. So totally. And and two Josh Garrels kept saying, you know, and but now I can give this away for free. And I I was like, but it's not it's not free though. Like somebody paid for for it. Exactly. And like it's I love that. I love that he did that. I think that's beautiful. If I if I were a musician, I liked I'd like to think I would do something similar. But it wasn't free. You know, a, a lot of people paid into it to make that possible, yeah. you know, and our, our, yeah. your benefactors, which there's nothing wrong with that, but you know, don't pretend like it didn't happen. I guess. Are you familiar with the phenomenon uh, lately of Bandcamp Friday where the, I think it's the first Friday of the month Bandcamp. Um, I'm a, I'm a huge fan of Bandcamp for a lot of reasons, but one of the things they do is on Bandcamp Friday, all of the funds are given to the artist for that oh, one day. Okay. So normally it's like they take, you know, 15%, which is like half of what, you know, Apple Music or Amazon, or maybe it's even less than that. But on Bandcamp Friday, like they don't take anything. So our platform makes no money to like keep the engine running. Every, every penny goes directly to the artist on Bandcamp Friday. So there's a guy I follow on Twitter who every Bandcamp Friday will say like, who wants an album? Like, tell me what album you want on Bandcamp and I'll just buy it for you and send you the code. Oh, cool. Because um, it, it, it's not free. Right. Somebody paid. Like right. he's saying, I will pay for you. Now there are artists that say like my album is name your price and you can say zero and that's okay. And you can, you can get it. But a lot of times people will say, wow, well, that's really cool. Here's a 20, which is more than you would have paid for the actual CD at a store, but it's not everybody, yeah. but, but maybe enough to, and in the meantime, all the people who got it for zero, you you've got folks listening to your music, which is what you want. Mm-hmm. You've got their email addresses, which Apple won't give you. Mm-hmm. And you can have a, a crowd for when you're ready to hit that up for a, an actual campaign, you know, six months down the road or whatever. Yeah, that's a great point. Okay. So you pointed out rightly that even with crowdfunding sites, there's still going to be some really good artists that won't find an audience mm-hmm. and some really bad art that will. Um, and that success hinges on popularity and money. So some some personal questions. How do you find the good stuff? You know, I guess thinking just about the last couple of years, I, I was much more, especially with music, um, I was much more dogged in my search for good music when I was younger, like in college and um, 
was kind of in a music scene there and would just go by word of mouth or whoever was in. So I went to Ohio University, which is in Athens, Ohio, and we would have a lot of really good bands come through there, which was so much fun. Um, so I got to find a lot of good people that way. I think now usually, um, with both writers and music, I more follow along the tastes of other people whose tastes I trust. So it's a lot of social media, you know, I follow a lot of musicians or critics or journalists on Twitter whose taste I trust. I also listen to the NPR has a podcast called pop culture happy hour. And I found a lot of artists that way, but I, I just kind of, you know, keep my ear to the ground, I suppose, as to who other people are listening to. I'm also, maybe this is because I'm getting older, but I also just, I think for the most part, most of the music I listen to is just new projects by artists that I've loved for a really long time. Yeah. And, and then along those lines, I put out a couple polls on Twitter and on Facebook in a Facebook group, just because I know the, the crowds are different in those places. Yeah. Kind of asking if you back campaigns, is it, only bands you already knew from, you know, days gone by. Mostly bands you love with occasionally new stuff. 50-50, mostly new stuff, you know. Yeah. Almost overwhelmingly, it was mostly stuff I've known and loved, some new stuff. Now, that could be, like, I'm a big fan of, of The Lost Dogs with Terry Taylor and Gene Eugene and Derry Doherty and Mike Rowe. They were all, like, Christian alternative megastars in my little world, but they did this country thing kind of like traveling Wilburys oh, cool. okay. of this, you know, super group. So when that album gets reissued on vinyl or CD and remastered with extra tracks, I'm all in because I, well, I already have the original CD, but I, I want more of the same and some of it's existing artists. So like over the Rhine, I've been a fan of theirs since their debut album. You'd mentioned Ohio. So you, you might've even had a chance to see or hear them. Um, mm-hmm. And they had a thing a while ago, like we're raising funds. We want to put out a new album and a new instrumental album and, you know, a new hymns album or whatever I'm in. But then like, I, I still thrive on like, not, not like a pride thing. Like I got to be the the cool guy hipster that was listening to it before it was big, but I love, you know, discovering like new artists and, you know, I'm just all about like wanting to know the new stuff. So Well, so then you are going to be my next follow on Twitter so that I can follow you who you're, you know, I also Garrett, a lot of times good TV more and more has really good music in it. And I've, I've found, I'm not ashamed to say I found like one or two really good artists in the past six months because of a commercial. Yeah. And I was like, whatever that is, I need it. it. Is, well, yeah. Well, and so do you use Shazam on your phone? Have no, ever... I usually just try and listen for lyrics and then I Google whatever lyrics I just heard. That's, that's kind of. So I've, I've been a fan of Shazam because we'll all hear something somewhere and go, what is this? And a lot of times it'll, it'll find it, but yeah. And then it's, yeah, track that down. So do you use streaming services? Have you found yourself kind of following specific folks who make Spotify playlists to discover new music? Um, or? I use, so I have Apple music. I do have, I have. Spotify and have done that looked up um, Spotify playlist before, but I'm more of like a, I suppose my listening habits are more, I like to sit down and listen to a full album or if I'm in the car, oh, I like that. to a full album, just cause I think it's, you know, it seems like musicians anymore don't put as much attention into the full album as they used to because they're releasing songs one at a time. But I love listening to a whole one just to see, um, 
the range of what they're doing. And also I think you get a better idea when you listen to a full album of how the artist conceives of themselves as opposed to just one moment in time or like one song. Yeah. You can really hear the song that they intended to be, you know, their single or whatever. Um, but I usually listen to the full, I try to anyway. I mean, when time allows. Yeah. Yeah. I am an album person and it's taken me a, a number of years lately to say I'll even bother with a single. So like if an artist I like, yeah. Hey, the new single comes out. Honestly, my, my reaction had been, yeah, I'll, I'll probably hear that when the album's out. And I I've done these same thing. Cause I don't, I don't care that you did a song. How am I going to buy a single song? Yeah. And then what? Oh, you know what? I feel like listening to that one song. Let me drill through my folders, find that one song and play it. And three minutes later, okay, I'm done. What next? Like, I don't, I don't live in the singles. I've gotten better mm-hmm. about like building playlists and, mm-hmm. um, you know, now I'm going through and as I hear a new song that I like, I'm throwing it in my best of 2021 playlist or whatever to kind of have some of those collected for singles, but it it took me having a couple artists I really like who never put out an album or an EP sure. or at least not a CD. And it's like, so you mean I'm never going to be able to get a CD? It's it's all just hear some loose songs. Yeah, I guess I I guess I better just listen to them. <laughs> but if I can throw them in a playlist, so I can kind of make my own album of sorts. That's awesome. I just love when I like when an album becomes. Um, like I listen to it so much during one period that it becomes like a sensory memory I can go back to. Yeah. You hear it and you remember where you were or when you were. We took a big family trip this summer. We went to Hawaii and that entire trip we were listening to John Mayer's latest album. And now that's just always going to be our Hawaii. It takes you right there. doesn't it? So fun. Yeah. 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 So how can we as fans and supporters of what we consider to be the good stuff, do a better job of helping them find success. Oh gosh. Well, you know what you mentioned earlier, and I think you're absolutely right that, um, that people, you know, most artists are excited about different sides of the process. Some people love the live concerts. Some people don't love touring, but love the studio and, but they're creative and they don't, maybe they're most of them to a person are not going to be super into the PR and marketing side of it. But I will say as someone married to a PR major, that that takes a lot of creativity too. Like it's a certainly a way different type of creativity. And the people who are more traditional creatives, like we're talking about, tend to not love that part of it. I certainly wouldn't. But I think that that's really how how it's done. I guess if we wanted to help, you know, the best way to expose artists that you love is by doing the stuff that you're talking about, I think. Talk about it on social media put it into your playlist and share it with people. Um, certainly support the products when you can, but I, I don't know, you know, I don't, I don't know the best way because again, I think these sites have a lot of positives and a lot of negatives, but they're not as different from traditional publishing in that sense as we w- might wish they are in the sense of, well, now we're going to really get to hear from like the grassroots good artists Probably not, you know, unless you ran into them, you know, physically on the street and they told you about it and you happened to look it up and it was really good, you know. If they invested in a recommendation engine of some kind, we could say, here's all the stuff I like. Give me the three campaigns this year that I need to back. Yeah. And and I think the sites 
themselves will, they do some PR for the people that are, you know, Hey, check out this campaign that has really gained traction this week. Yeah. And that's it. It's gaining momentum. So one of the artists, I, I, uh, liked her campaign and I asked her a question and I never heard back. Mm -hmm. And finally I heard back and it was, Oh, sorry. Um, I started the the campaign and then we went on a family vacation. (laughs) I thought, um, but then other folks, you know, very responsive, Mm -hmm. very involved. Like you'd said, like have samples of the music so you can know what it's going to sound like. But the, the real magic happens when they'd already sent their email list a heads up two weeks in advance. Right. Saying on this day the campaign's going to launch. I could really use your support. Mm-hmm. Hey, tomorrow, just a reminder: tomorrow the campaign's going to launch. If you could like push it big that first day, we can get some momentum, get that traction, yeah. percolate up to the top of the Kickstarter page, and then it gets visible to random strangers totally. who aren't my fans. And then maybe you know we catch yeah. new fans. And, and I I think too that one of the things that these um platforms have that traditional publishing doesn't like maybe the thing that gives them the most edge is the possibility of intimacy with the artists. And that, uh, that too is going to be a double-edged sword that can certainly be um, exploited both by the artists and by people who are supporting them. But if artists can capitalize on that in a healthy way and a professional way, I think that will go a long way, you know, so you're not just saying, Hey, my, you know, my campaign is launching in two weeks, but hey, my campaign is launching in two weeks and in, in you know, a couple nights, I'm going to do a Facebook Live or I'm going to do something where we can talk. Some Q&A and exactly. or play one song and talk through the story behind exactly. it or, yeah. Well, and you'd, you'd mentioned one of the people you profiled, actually, I've got it, I think, in front of me. No, I don't. It's on a different page. Was um, uh, the, the need for boundaries. There was almost yeah. oh, too yeah. much of an expectation mm-hmm. that the artist will be available to me. Kind of that whole, like, my taxes pay your pay totally. kind of mindset. <laughs> uh, but like, I backed your thing and you owe me. Like, and it's like, no, 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 that can't be healthy. It can't, it can't be like that. Um, yeah. but there is that opportunity for greater insight, greater, yeah. you know, some of the, I, I've never, I've never been lured in by the tier that says, I'll, I'll do, uh, short calls or texts during the recording studio or I'll send you pictures from the behind the scenes right. of making of just cause I'm like, you know what? That's, that's cool. I'll wait till the album comes out and let it speak for itself. Yeah. But I don't, I don't mind the, here's the audio commentary disc where I talk about the songs totally. or, or why or like, like video liner notes that. that you get to. Yeah, exactly. Record. That's, I, I'm all in. That's exciting. But like, I don't, I don't need. I don't need you to just feel like you have to stop and send something because you somehow like, cause I paid for your project. Yeah. There's a weird sort of like nebulous. Now I'm also a social media influencer kind of thing where it's like, well, that's, that's not why I appreciate what you do, you know? Yeah. <laughs> kind of, yeah. Pushes some boundaries, I think in an unhealthy way. Yeah. Well, I really appreciated this conversation. I am so excited about this. Yeah, I, this was great. It was exciting to see somebody actually cover this specifically from a Christian perspective. I sure do appreciate your time. I should let you go. I know it's late out there. So yeah, it is getting late. I'm just now realizing that. Sorry about that. This was such a good conversation. Yeah, this is so great to meet you. Yeah, you yeah. as well. Talk to you later. Thanks, Garrett. If you'd like to read the article itself or listen to the special Gourmet Music Podcast episode with Josh Garrels, the links will be in the show notes. 
Now, I've got another great interview for you this episode. I had a conversation with a writer, singer, songwriter, podcaster about an article he wrote about five ways you can help your favorite artists with their new releases. And that's coming up right after this quick break. This UTR podcast is sponsored by the latest album from Texas-based songwriter Graham Jones. Blessed are you among women, Mary. Blessed is the fruit of the womb, young Mary. Good News, Great Joy by Graham Jones is an Advent collection of original songs focused on the coming of the Savior. Let us go Find Good News, Great Joy by Graham Jones on Spotify and all major music platforms. This UTR podcast is sponsored by the 14th Career Studio Album from critically acclaimed songwriter Sarah Groves. it through is Sarah Grove's first collection of original songs in six years. Find What Makes It Through by Sarah Groves now on Spotify and all major music platforms. This UTR podcast is brought to you by the debut EP by singer-songwriter Emily McCoy. In This Weary Land by Emily McCoy is a psalm-based EP designed to help you find God's light of hope in the midst of darkness. You can find In This Weary Land by Emily McCoy on Spotify and all major music platforms. And look for our interview with Emily on our website, utrmedia.org. And we are back. I first became aware of Chase Tremaine as the host of the Jesus Freak Hideout podcast a few years back, and then as an artist in 2019 when I backed his Kickstarter campaign for his debut album, Unfall. Then we covered the pre-order for his album, Development and Compromise, which came out in January. But even after that project was done, he gave it a complete reworking and even has new material on it. And it has been officially released or re-released a couple weeks ago. And you can find it everywhere online, including Bandcamp. And he just released like a few days ago, a full album titled Commitments and Cover Songs, Volume 2, as a special project for his wife. But those aren't why I've got him on here for this episode. Toward the end of October, he wrote an article titled Five Ways You Can Help Your Favorite Artists With Their New Releases. That was a great read, and it had several things I had never thought of before. 
So I asked him if he would come on the podcast and help walk us through his five tips. Here is my conversation with Chase Tremaine. Chase Tremaine, I would like to welcome you to Good Patron. You had an article you posted back in uh, late October on five ways you can help your favorite artists with their newest releases, and that immediately set off my radar um, as something interesting and something I wanted to dive into. And as soon as I read it, I thought, I've got to have you on and share these with our listeners. Um, do you do you mind kind of going through one by one with your five tips? Yeah, I would be happy to. Um, and you know, I, I wrote this article, you know, in part because some of these had been things I've picked up over recent years, um, or some of them are actually kind of recent, like over recent months. Uh, things I've learned about how to help artists when, you know, in the current. Uh, sphere of streaming and social media, it can be very hard to wade through just how super saturated the entire industry is right now. And then there were some things that I even did additional research in order to post this article. And it's just five ways. It's, it's, you know, <laughs> far from exhaustive, but I thought I'd finally gotten to a point where what I'd learned was researched enough and helpful enough to compile and share. So it's been really cool to see people taking well to it and, you know, using some of these ways or, um, again, like, you know, you invited me on here. I'm so honored to be on this podcast. I love what you do uh, with Good Patron. So, uh, yeah, um, I can go ahead and jump into number one if you want. Well, and, and actually I want to preface to say there are plenty of folks that have like, you know, everything from here's how to, to buy bots or tweets or fake engagement or, you know, um, that kind of thing. And you were very clear. I'm looking for honest, like engaging, organic, real support. Cause that's, that's what's going to matter. That's the actual people, not, not bots and, and things like that. So, um, that's one of the things I appreciated about this. Thank you. And that was kind of my point zero. That was, that was my own preface to the article, as uh, to say, you know, there are very unhealthy ways to help an artist that might look good for a few weeks, you know, using like, you know, bots to get a bunch of new Instagram followers or a bunch of streams on a new single. But if you show up to someone's Spotify account and see that they have hundreds of thousands of streams, but like, I don't know, 200 monthly listeners, like there's, there's a, there's such a huge gap there that kind of reveals, okay, whatever they did to get that massive amount of streams, whether it was real people or Russian bots, you know, it didn't result in lasting fans and lasting engagement. And that's, and that's what I want. I want, you know, not only for people um, to, if you already love an artist um, to do these like few little things, even to just do one or two of these five things to, so that you can help better support the artists you already love and to do it in a way that will help them get their music in front of other people so that they can create more like legitimate fans that will want to have lasting engagement with their art. Yeah. 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 So uh, I actually, sorry, one last point on that is I, I, someone let me know after I posted this article that they had been spinning a new album nonstop over the weekend on mute, doing one of the things that I recommend not doing. And he was like, Oh yeah, I was <laughs> trying to help out this artist by doing this. And then I read your article and I stopped. I was like, well, Cool. <laughs> when I, I've seen stuff where 
some you know band came out with an album and it was all silence and they're just like play this over and over all you know and it's like oh, oh yeah please just don't don't yeah. do the fake games because that's that's not going to help anybody and what's crazy is that artists as big of as big as justin bieber have like done the same thing like given instructions to their fans on how to try to cheat the system well we've had we've had controversies within the church of pastor mega pastor authors who may or may not have even written their actual book that has their name on it who then use church funds to buy like huge quantities of their book to try and artificially create the charts so it's like look i'm on the bestseller list well yeah but your church just purchased 200,000 copies of your book to fake you up to the bestseller list that's yeah. that's not that's not legitimate like yeah you know right the super shady like funneling money within itself yeah. because if your own church is buying all those copies and you can just resell or fake reviews on Amazon on or mm-hmm. bots that get subscribers for YouTube. I mean, you know, none of that. We, I think we've all become cynical enough that if I look at something in Amazon and it's all five star reviews and it's all within the last, you know, three weeks for a brand new product, I'm going to get really suspicious. Right. Um, and I think it's, it can be the same with this when you see tons of hype and you, you talk about this later about just, you know, being honest with what you like. And if your friends don't like what you like, that's okay. And you can still be friends and have different tastes. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, you don't have to hype everything. And when you do hype everything, you kind of start to lose your voice because you're, you're, you've become a human spam bot. Right. Yeah. Anyway. Okay. So sorry. I, I got ahead. No, walk us through, totally walk good. us through your, your first. Your yeah. first step. And the, the steps aren't sequential per se, but there are a few points that kind of build on themselves. Um, so the first one is really the simplest, which is if you actually purchase physical music or even if you purchase digital music, uh, what you can be doing to better support these artists is to continue streaming it. You know, it's, not a huge deal if you simply don't use streaming services. And I fully support someone if all they want to do is actually purchase things and not get into the Spotify or Apple Music game. But that's very rare at this point. Uh, most people have at least one streaming service that they use or pay for or regularly use Spotify free and just deal with the ads. Either way, if you have a streaming service you should continue listening to artists with that streaming service, even if you like have the CD, have the vinyl. And the reason for that is you're helping to continue putting money in place into that artist's wallet. Like, you know, it's going to be very hard for you to ever stream an album enough for an artist to get the $10 that you gave them by actually buying the album in full. But why not still make that a little bit higher, you know? If you listen to a regular length album, you know, like 10 to 12 tracks on Spotify premium, that's three or four cents that the artist is getting. Like that's not nothing, you know? Right. And if, if you are paying a Spotify, uh, what, $10, I think it is now for their monthly subscription, like you would effectively want to be listening to enough music for as much of that $10 to be going to artists as possible. Absolutely. Yeah. And so my tip there is that, you know, like if you're, you know, driving like and actually just listening to CDs, like, you know, when you're at a stoplight or someone else in the car, just put the same 
album on on your streaming service. Or if you're in the house and you really want to listen to a vinyl record, again, just at an imperceptible volume, not mute, not all the way down, but as you know, quiet to the point where it won't be um, bothersome, just let the same album play uh, in the background while you're listening to your vinyl record. That has a kind of a, a unrelated to supporting artists, kind of, but that has an extra uh, value add for me because I use uh, Last FM, the website, to track everything I listen to. Um, so I can kind of better keep sorted with the music that I really love, the music that engages me, so I can go back and see what I've listened to throughout the year. And so, you know, it won't track if it, if I didn't like play it on Spotify or on my iTunes account. Um, so that's fun too. I just think that extra, that extra few plays, you know, can still go a long way for an artist. And even for like morale wise, if you're talking about a really indie artist, Who's, you know, CD you bought at a show that only had 12 people in the audience, you know, to give them those streams, you know, means that they are less likely to ever log into their like Spotify for artists account and see zero. Well, and they start saying, well, I've got a listener in Oklahoma City or right, right. I, I was just there. It must be probably one of those 12 people. <laughs> right. And so the, the, the amount of uh, encouragement that can come from that it, for indie artists is huge as well. And, you know, I, as a kind of a side point that we skipped earlier, um, these, these five tips are applicable to artists of any size, but most helpful for indie artists or new artists, ones that are still trying to get established. So, so take me to tip number two, cause I, I had not ever thought of this one before. Um, so this, this has me thinking. Yeah, this is a fascinating one. Uh, so this is where we're getting into algorithms. This is kind of a point that's built around streaming algorithms and then a future point deals with social media algorithms. Uh, so point two is when an artist releases a single, don't listen to the single by itself. Listen within a playlist. Uh, so basically a, a huge factor into why and how Spotify is so huge and why its competitors can't catch up with it is because they have done such an amazing job with their playlists uh, that they have very easy playlists to create and share among users. They have a wide array of official curated playlists uh, that get a lot of notoriety and a lot of attention. And then they have uh, their algorithmic playlists that they create for all users. And that includes you know, every Friday, a release radar playlist that shows you uh, new releases or new-ish releases from artists that you've listened to or that you follow or that the algorithm thinks you'll like. Similarly, you get Discover Weekly, a weekly curated playlist that is intended to show you artists that as well as Spotify knows that you haven't listened to before uh, and that fit in with the artists that you have listened to. And then they have just kind of like daily mixes uh, that's a bunch of different playlists that will update pretty consistently based around your favorite artists. And I, I see some that are kind of segmented by genre, like here's this list and it's all this kind of genre and here's this other list and because my tastes are pretty varied, but it, it does a good job of kind of keeping them together. Right. Um, and so it'll have like you know, your Weezer mix and then your you know Daft Punk mix and it'll keep genres fairly well separated and then when you go into those you'll see like the songs that you stream the most from that artist plus songs from artists that you might ne have never heard of before 
that are similar to like the main artists that show up in those mixes. So the way that Spotify learns where to put artists is by studying other Spotify playlists. So that goes from the curated playlists that are, again, you know, always broken down by genre all the way down to user generated playlists. And the user generated playlist thing is massive in terms of not only how it can help artists, but how it can really have an effect on how Spotify's algorithm deals with that artist. So basically, if I were to release a new single and a lot of people like heard it and said, Hey, this would fit well in my playlist that has, you know, old school, like 2000s emo, like Jimmy World and May and the Academy is and Cartel, you know, my single being played amidst those artists uh, and multiple playlists of, you know, similar types, similar genres is teaching the Spotify algorithm that this type of fan likes this new single. So when we are automatically generating these discover weeklies or daily mixes for fans of Jimmy world and cartel, uh, then we can show this new chase Tremaine single in there too, and have a higher likelihood of them liking it. Right. And the more evidence that Spotify's algorithm has, the more confidence it has in showing uh, these smaller artists to new fans. And all of this, it kind of like builds up um, Spotify's... Uh, like their accuracy and confidence. Yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. Uh, like their reputation for having these great playlists and being able to introduce new artists to new fans, which is, again, one of the main reasons a lot of people love Spotify and have stuck with it, uh, even as prices increase and all these controversies around them not paying artists enough. So uh, similarly, when you're listening to your release radar on any given Friday. When you listen to uh, a song all the way through, or when you listen to it in release radar and give it the little heart, or if you listen to it multiple times, all of that type of activity is telling Spotify, oh, I should keep pushing this song in other release radars. Um, so like basically the more successful a song is within any of its algorithmic playlists, it will then push into more and more playlists. Your kind of thrust with this tip is listen to those new songs inside a playlist. Don't just like, I heard Mission House had a new single. I go up to search. I search for Mission House. I played the single. I'm done. Instead, like hit the playlist that includes the Mission House. And in that context, it not only gives them the four cents or whatever, but it also gives them the give Spotify the awareness that this was listened to all the way through, that it was well-liked within this context and, and gives them the knowledge to kind of share that further out among other folks. Right. Yeah. Listening to a single by itself is good. You know, it's still, you know, a stream for the band, but what's much better and what can really help an artist out in terms of the Spotify algorithm is to listen within playlists. And so you have the option of finding it within pre-existing playlists, sure, but it's fairly easy within the phone or the desktop app to create playlists. And and just like a little tip that I gave while making this is, you know, if you're the type of person that scours the internet on Fridays for new releases, something that you can do is simply start out your day collecting those new releases in a playlist together and then start listening once they're there. Yep. Uh, this is especially helpful if you're um, mostly into one scene or if you're able to 
group songs together by related genres. Or, you know, just make it a bigger habit to put songs together as you discover them or like them throughout the year. You know, if you like making lists at the end of the year of like your favorite worship albums, your favorite alternative albums, then if you are collecting those throughout the year in a playlist and listening to them inside of that playlist instead of, you know, alone by themselves, then that's helping out those artists in multiple ways beyond simply the streams. And then you have the added benefit as a user of having a collected spot where, hey, look, here are all of my like favorite, you know, worship albums of the year. Here are all of my favorite K-pop singles of the year. And all of that is helping the algorithm and can become, uh, you know, a benefit to you organizationally and, you know, helping you as a fan to not forget about things because you actually stored it somewhere rather than just stream it once, say, hey, that was good. And then you can go back to that list. Right. And you can do things like, you know, just putting it on shuffle, you know, that that helps, you know, put all these artists you know, together into the algorithm uh, in a fresh way. And I, and I think it is pretty profound that, you know, you really can help an artist in this way, especially like some people, just random users, just depending on what artists they put in their public playlists and how they title it might have a random playlist just blow up and get a lot of followers, a lot of listeners. You know, I've seen people uh, with just kind of random accounts and a bunch of playlists with no followers. And then one playlist that just randomly has 4,000 followers. So like that's you as just, you know, a regular person with relatively little influence, you know, in the music world, like your ability to kind of accidentally give mega support to an artist because you thoughtfully put a playlist together. Yeah. Well, and that, what you just said about like maybe one playlist out of the, out of the batch hitting differently than the others points kind of, kind of good transition to, to your um, tip number three, where it's not just the single is the best song or most important song on albums. I'm, I'm older than you. And I remember buying 45s back in the day. Sure. And, you know, cause that's how you got the, just the one or two songs instead of the full album. But then I, I was very much into albums, not singles. And so even this whole move into singles driven stuff, honestly, like I, I was buying albums on Bandcamp and I liked that I could have everything organized in my folder structure and play it locally. And I would buy the CDs and I would get frustrated when it's so-and-so just released a single. And it's like, okay, so I bought that one song all by itself on Bandcamp. Where do I keep that? And how am I going to find that when I'm listening to this album and then that album? And then there's this, what, one song? Mm-hmm. And I'm going to play that one song and then have to switch to something else. And I, honestly, my approach when somebody came out with a single was, yeah, I'll hear that when I get the album. And what I found out was like a lot of artists, it would just be a series of singles and maybe there was never an album or they just finally collected six of them, called it an EP and they still didn't put out a CD of it. And I'm like, okay, I'm being dragged into, you know, the modern age kicking and screaming. (laughs) Right. Now I'm very much, you know, playlists and singles, but, but your point of, but maybe it's the deep cut. I, I had always had moments where I thought, this is the song that's on the radio and why? Cause this other song is the better song. And you know, if I was the A&R guy or whoever's picking the songs for the radio, like this is the one I would be pushing. And your point is like, if I could paraphrase, go ahead and listen to the full album, look at the deep cuts 
put those on your playlist and it might be one of those deep cuts that goes viral and explodes for the artist. Right. What you mentioned earlier about, you know, 45s, you're like, no fan ever had a say as to which singles would get printed on the 45s. You know, there were the songs that you could get on the 45s and the songs you could only get on the full records. And it might be your favorite, but it might not mean, you know, diddly squat to the larger population. And that, you know, remained true for the entire reign of, uh, radio, right? Yep. You know, it wouldn't be the entire album being sent to radio stations and then a disc jockey saying, Oh, I'm going to play this song. You know, it was thousands, if not millions of dollars being put into promotional campaigns for a specific single that would get the music video and the promotional run and the interviews. And that is thankfully no longer the case. And, you know, something that I, you know, I used to be like very anti streaming, which is kind of ironic based on the conversation we're now having. But one of the things that I, I do love about streaming is that it has flattened out the market in terms of, you know, you not needing to have the radio campaign or the music video in order to have a successful song. And, you know, sometimes when it comes to like your label or your A&R or even the band themselves, as much as you can try to pick the best choices for singles from an album, or, you know, as you were saying, to even just be putting out singles that have no intentions of being an album, uh, it's it can be really hard to guess which songs are actually going to connect with people. And streaming allows you to provide very direct data to not only the streaming service, but the artists themselves and their entire team, if they have one, as to which songs are connecting, uh, which songs people are putting on playlists or listening to on repeat or, you know, sharing around, um, saving all these different data points that you have uh, on the back end to say, oh, this is the song. And so you might have released, you know, four or five singles before your album came out, you know, and that's becoming more and more frequent where, you know, large portions of the album will be released as singles before an album actually drops. And then you might have a deep cut in the album that's more successful than any of those singles, which is amazing. And, you know, you want to, as a fan, participate in that. Yep. You know, I think most of us, especially those of us who have been album listeners for a long time, we probably all have experiences of seeing like what singles or music videos an artist puts out and be like, why? Why did you pick that song? Like I, I have so many artists that I'm fans of where I'm thoroughly convinced that different single choices could have made them much more popular and been way better for them. And of course, like we don't have that, you know, type of intuition to say for sure, but the logic can sometimes be in our favor. And now, you know, we can use our, as, you know, as small as our influence may be, still use that little bit of influence to help not only artists know uh, what songs you really think are the best and to participate in those, like you said, potentially blowing up virally, but then to also be a passionate fan of, you know, I think it's very easy for an artist to say, Hey fans, we released this new single, go share it around, go tell all your friends, go make a big you know, fuss about it. But it's way more meaningful when you as a listener can spend time with an album and then say, no, this is the song that means a lot to me. This, you know, track 13 you know is is the one that i really love and want to tell people about and have something thoughtful and personal to share about it rather than just pushing the band single because it's the single yeah 
And you'd, you'd mention specifically share it with, don't just like play that, put it on your playlist, but share it with people, whether it's a post on Facebook or Instagram or in a forum, tag the artist, um, maybe just a note to the artist. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is the song. This is why. This is how it connected me. Tell the story. Make people care. Um, show the connection. I all of that. You know, I think that's huge. Right. You know, if if you're if you're super shy and timid, or if you know, if you're the type of person which I completely understand, where the idea of posting, you know, things on social media, trying to get other people to listen to something, if that just really rubs you the wrong way, and so you don't want to get into that game, you can simply just reach out to the artist and and let them know. You know, most. Uh, artists at this point, like their DMs are open on Instagram or Facebook. You say, Hey, like this song that you might not know that it's impacting anyone. You might not have thought that it was worth putting towards the front of the album or releasing as a single, but I want you to know that it's really, really important to me and I really love it. Um, that's the type of thing that, you know, that small type of encounter can be the type of thing that inspires an artist to keep making music. You also included a pro tip of. Like, here's a wild idea. Throw the album on shuffle and hear them in a different mm-hmm. context, different order. And that, that can make a huge difference. And there, there's a whole, like, either intuition or science about song order and structure and just like storytelling. Like, there's a, a path you want people to take. A concept album, like, it's got to be in an order. It tells a story. But if it's just a collection of songs, maybe hearing them in a different order can make a difference. It's not buried in the middle of side B anymore. It's like maybe the first one you heard and you're, you're able to hear it kind of with fresh ears, not tainted by the songs that came right before it. I thought right. that was really good. Yeah. I've got, I mean, I have a lot of personal experiences in this. Um, I, for example, uh, there's a band called Jonesetta, uh, that released two really good albums on tooth and nail before they broke up, you know, 14 ish years ago. And they were such a weird up and down band for me because I, my brother tried showing me their first album and I hated it, <laughs> but he just kind of kept on showing it to me. And eventually there was like one song late in the track listing. It was like track nine out of 11. I was like, Oh, I like this one. And eventually that got me to come around and listen to the album again and eventually fall in love with it. And now it's like a lifelong favorite of mine. And when they released their second album, I really didn't dig it. Uh, the the first two tracks I found especially off-putting and it was just very, just a very weird order for me. Uh, but eventually I thought like, ah, I'll just throw it on shuffle. And it helped me to see those first two tracks in a brand new light and in a different context where I was like, Oh, I do like these songs now. And I just needed, I just needed it to not be the first thing I heard. Right. I needed the album to contextualize itself with more, kind of readily likable songs before those two would really click for me. Yeah. Uh, and I have this experience all the time. I think, especially if you're listening to something new or an unfamiliar genre, I think it's just human nature to start to taper off towards the end and just kind of get tired of it, even if you're generally liking it or enjoying it. And, you know, it can be so helpful just to jump in in that second half uh, and be like, you know what? I'm not going to wade through the first half of this album again and get too tired by the second half. I'm just going to listen to the second half and see how that is. And that can make a huge difference too. And I think if you even take albums in in smaller portions like that, uh, it, you might eventually build yourself up to the point where you can really enjoy it on the whole yeah. in a better way. So your point four, engage with the artists on social media. I think that's kind of an obvious, like, yep, do that and you can move on. Except 
you said some stuff in here that I'd never thought of that really stuck out to me. And so I don't want to just say, yep, do that and move on. I want to, I want to have you kind of explain why it's so important that I engage with an artist about an album that I'm already on board with, already bought it. Like, so you're not marketing to me. Um, but, but you say no, you, you need to engage. Why is that? Yeah. The, you need to engage because the algorithms working in these social media systems are out to get you. <laughs> they are actively working against basically every user so that the only users that rise to the top are the ones that are getting the most engagement. And, uh, this is fairly true in all of the social media platforms, but I used Instagram as my main example in the article because that's the one where I've learned the most kind of up-to-date stats recently. Um, I don't know how much it will remain true. Um, I, I don't think it'll change massively, but Instagram is known to change up its algorithm pretty frequently. So as best as I know, this is true right now. But basically, when you make a post on Instagram, it will show at first to no more than about 10% of your followers, which it's like, why have followers? Why make such a you know effort to gain these followers if Instagram isn't even going to show your stuff to all of them? Yep. That's, that's part of the frustrating issue that you're basically needing to prove to Instagram with every single post that your post is worth showing to your whole follower base. And that happens by Instagram starting out with just this small pool of not just like 10% of like random followers, but usually it's going to be 10% of your most usually engaged followers. And whether or not they show that post to more followers is going to depend on how it plays with that first pool. And so if you are one of that 10% because you're a really big fan of this little indie artist and they make a post about their new album that you've already bought or streamed a few times or whatever. Because you're one of their like most hardcore fans. Right, right. Um, which makes sense, you know, and so you're seeing it promoted again and you're like, okay, I've had enough of this and you just scroll right past it. Well, what you've just done as one of their biggest fans is inadvertently because you're a big fan already, uh, you have accidentally um, told Instagram that they should not show this post to more people because if you're not interested in it as one of their bigger fans, why would anyone else be interested in it? Yeah. So what I recommend as just the way to help users and artists push past that is just to hover over it for a few seconds, give it a like, maybe give it just a really quick comment, you know, ideally read the caption or at least like stay there for a second as if you're reading the caption is you know, there again, if it's promoting the same album, you probably know what it says already. Uh, but maybe there's something fresh there. Hopefully, you know, these artists aren't just posting literally the same thing over and over again. Maybe, you know, maybe you might be missing out on a cool detail or cool story that the artist is sharing with a specific post that you wouldn't have actually known had you not actually stopped to read this post that you thought, you know, you wouldn't need. Yeah. But your just little engagement there with reading, liking, commenting is the thing that's going to push uh, that post into larger swaths of the people that actually follow this artist and are being bottlenecked from getting to see 
news from an artist that they follow, which is so sad and frustrating. And a lot of this has to do with the move uh, across Facebook and Instagram toward using paid advertisements and you know paid posts instead of the free kind, which is its own, you know, its own issue. I remember on on Facebook there was a way if an artist had a page, uh, I can follow that artist, and it's the same exact thing. I won't see everything, and if I go into the settings for the follow button for that artist's page, there was a section where I could say, "Just show me the the most popular. Just show me the you know whatever. Show me everything. Mm. Always show." And if I wanted to always see what that page had i had to like go out of my way to drill down to the settings to say always show when it's like i i thought that's what i already had but it's because those can be a fire hose like twitter doesn't do that but if you follow a lot of people you'll see a blur of stuff and you're still likely to miss things unless i go to someone's profile but that instagram post i can't tell you how many times since i read that that i'm like pull out my phone go to instagram you know, there's no activity on the, like somebody commented or tried to follow and I'm about to just close it because I was just checking in and I think I'm going to scroll through some things. I'm going to like that. I'm going to comment. I'm going to like that. I'm going to comment because you'd mentioned that. And I'm like, I, I want to be the good fan. I want to be the good patron Yeah, that helps tell Instagram you should continue sharing this post. Yeah. That was hugely, hugely helpful for me um, and a, a brand new idea. So. Yeah, and then uh, a little tip that I had there yeah. is if you can avoid paying Instagram and Facebook for things, like that's again, like it's I think it's kind of dare I say evil <laughs> how they've uh, set it out. But basically, once you start paying for Facebook and Instagram ads, uh, they kind of funnel you almost into a different algorithm that's even worse for you unless you keep paying for every post. So if once you basically say, I'm willing to pay for my post to get out there, Facebook will do even less to push your posts and show your posts to people unless you pay for it. So if you had an ad that said, new album, these are the descriptions, and you say in your targeting, target fans of Jimmy Eat World, that page, and or this members of this group or something, they're going to say, oh, he's willing to pay, so let's make him pay every time. Yeah, and that's what I did when I you know, released my uh, last album in January, and it really didn't do me any good. I never, I could, can't track any profits uh, or like new fans that came from me paying for those ads. What I can say is that I had some people tell me that they saw the same ad over and over again, which means like in terms of like paying per impression and for showing people, like Facebook is willing uh, to show it to the same people over and over again. A hundred impressions is not a hundred different people. Right. Yeah. And again, like as soon as I did that and, and paid for my first ad, my uh, ability to get free exposure on the site dwindled. And it's really sad because I used to have like a very natural kind of built in like Facebook friend following that Facebook just doesn't really push anymore. Uh, and so like none of my, uh, personal posts have really been that successful ever since I paid for one. Um, wow. and it's just, <laughs> it's a scam. <laughs> okay. So number five, and again, it's one that feels obvious, uh, but it's tell your friends. You, you talk about this. Uh, you know, it's like the classic been around for a long time. I'm gonna, how do I put this politely? 
I'm going to trust the opinion of my friends whose opinion I trust. <laughs> so like I have mm-hmm. friends who like music and I don't like that music. So their recommendation does not mean anything to me that this is a great album. It just tells me I probably won't like it because I don't like any of the other albums you think are great. But from the people whose tastes kind of line up with mine, or at least I respect enough mm-hmm. to say, when when I hear this person say, I like this album, I am going to check out that album. I'm going to listen, at least give it an honest first pass. Yeah. And and so you're saying, you know, leverage leverage the relationships you have. It doesn't even have to be social media, it could be in person. Kind of expand on on some of that. Sure. And, and this is a very careful balance of um using the relationships you have to share the art you love, uh, without ever hurting those relationships by overemphasizing, you know, like your recommendations, your preferences as something more important than you know, the other person and, and their time and, and their tastes and their, you know, values. So I think there are, there are a lot of tasteful ways to do this as well as just very easy way to do ways to do this. I think, you know, tell all of your friends for a lot of people, this point is like make a tweet that might get zero likes, you know, make a, a blog post on a blog that has very few followers. Like do those. Yes, please. But I think meaningful things to do. And, and this is, maybe comes from me being like a nineties kid you know, make a mixtape for someone, you know, uh, and the modern version of making a mixtape for someone is making a playlist for someone, like going back to the same thing. Like, like again, like these, these ideas can roll together in pretty cool ways when it's like, I'm going to put, you know, these 20 indie pop artists that aren't very well known together on a playlist, which not only helps them algorithmically, but I'm doing it to show a certain friend who I think might love all of these 20 artists. Yeah. And then that can also, you know, be spread out. You know, if it's a public playlist, it doesn't have to be just for that person, but you made it with that one person in mind, which is meaningful and you know, valuable and says, like, I don't just care about these artists and them being successful. I care about you as a person and think that this could be something we both enjoy. And if that doesn't work, that's okay. Yep. You know, never like you aren't doing your friend yourself or the artist you're supporting any favors by trying to stuff them down people's throats or getting, you know, upset if, you know, a recommendation isn't taken well, if someone just says, um, yeah, not really for me, but you know, at the same time, like there are so many cool ways that music can be shared in a way that isn't, you know, sticking something in someone's face, say, Hey, spend 45 dedicated minutes listening to this and not doing anything else. And that could be, you know, having friends over for dinner and just putting on your newest final record in the background. That can be, uh, and this is something I, I've done that I actually think was really, really fun. Going on a road trip where the whole point of the road trip is like taking turns showing each other CDs or, you know, your own mix CDs or playlists. Or, you know, if you really like an artist and like, you know what, like I can fit it in my budget to buy three of these CDs instead of just one. That's one for me and two that I can just give to people for Christmas. Yep. And, and so it's this way that all of this, it, it really, it, it, the focal point here is the fact that music is supposed to be about community. It's supposed to bring us together, you know? And so if music isn't bonding us together relationally, and if that isn't a role that it's playing in our lives, uh, then I, I think we're kind of missing something, you know? And I'm very lucky to think back upon how like my brother and I, you know, we hated each other growing up, but became friends when we found music that we both enjoyed. Yep. 
Um, and that's been true of like some of my closest friends, um, you know, that we, you know, might've been acquaintances like at the same school or at the same college. But when we found that artist that we we're both like, yeah, this is really great. You see them wearing that shirt from that band and you're like, yeah. Oh, suddenly we, we immediately have something in common. Right. No, I, I met my wife at a concert, uh, for a, a Christian metalcore band called Wolves of the Gate. And the thing that made me like want to go up and talk to her besides her being beautiful was the fact that she was wearing a Wolves of the Gate t-shirt that had all the band member signatures on it. So it wasn't just like, Oh, maybe she's here for one of the other bands. It's like, no, she's crazy about the same artist that I'm crazy about. <laughs> um, yeah. Like that's just, that's just huge, you know, and, and I think artists themselves a lot of the time are making music because that's how they're wanting to relate to other people, you know, like there are sadly some artists that are making music to put on a front and put on a mask. But, you know, a lot of the artists, especially the ones worth supporting out there are creating music because that's how they know to take off the mask and to actually like yeah. be honest and to be real. And so when we let it, you know, music can have the same effect in our own lives to help us get like, you know, down and dirty and honest and authentic with one another. As well as even just, you know, if you have an album that has made you cry or made you like reevaluate like, your life, it becomes a very special, very personal thing to share that with people. Um, and you know, that can create like meaningful bonds and. Well, and it's a, it's an opening for some incredible conversations. Like if I, so the new Sarah Groves just came mm -hmm. out. And if I listen to that and say, wow, this is really vulnerable. This is really exposing. But it's also challenging in some points and decide I'm going to share this with a friend who, you know, I would share to Neil Netta. I would share Yaz Williams. I would share Sarah Groves with that person and say, you know, let's talk about this music. But I'm not going to share propaganda or Tina Boonstra or some of my other favorite artists mm -hmm. with them because like that's that's not their lane that they like. But but here's an artist that they would engage with. Here's an album. Here's a song that really connects. Yeah. Um, and now we can talk about that and say this, you know, did this connect with you the same way? Cause I still can't listen to it and not cry or, yeah. or it, it makes me angry every time I hear this <laughs> to think you know, this still is happening. Yeah. And I thought we were over this or whatever it is. It really can launch those meaningful connections and conversations. Yeah. And that's a really good point to say that like a well catered recommendation comes from a place of actually caring about a person and like remembering things, you know, if you just have a band that you're obsessed with and so you recommend them to literally everyone, like, sure, that's cool. It's going to get annoying. But, you know, to say, hey, I remember that you mentioning that you like this, you know, neo grunge band. So I thought you might like this neo grunge band too. It's like, oh, thank you for remembering that. Thank you for like internalizing that little detail about me. And so this recommendation comes from a place of relationship. Yeah. Well, and wanting to do something beneficial for your friend, not just beneficial for the band. Right. Exactly. Like it's not, it's not a generic, I saw a billboard. And so I thought I would show it to you. Right. It's, it's a two way street. Yeah. Because I care about you and I like you and I like this. I think you would enjoy, I like, I'm not going to keep pushing coffee shops to my mother-in-law because she doesn't like coffee. Yeah. So like, I love coffee. Yeah. But it, it wouldn't make any sense because I know she doesn't. So yeah, I mean, I, I think that that adds a, an immediate credibility. Right. <laughs> if it's, and, and yeah, like uh, the, 
as just uh even just like a way forward for people listening to this, you know, to if you ever have a moment where you're listening to a song and it just makes you think of someone, just just show it to them, you know? Yep. It's like they're, they're, that's such a beautiful thing to say like, hey, like a lyric in this song or something like made me think of you or made me think of when we like did this activity together or whatever it is. Yeah. And like that's that's just such a authentic and beautiful way for music to be shared in a way that matters. So I want to a little bit put you on the spot uh, with a touch back to earlier stuff, just because uh, we talked about playlists. So I, I know that uh, UTR Media, they're the folks who put out Good Patron, mm-hmm. have the Heart, Soul, and Mind playlist that's regularly updated, as well as some thematic playlists. I know that uh, True Tunes, uh, John Thompson and the podcast True Tunes, has the Gallery Stage mixtape that's updated regularly as a Spotify playlist. Um I, I know that uh, Noah Hardwick puts a lot of work every Friday into a new list of new music. And I think some folks are putting together Indivision music playlists, although I'm not 100% sure. What what playlist would you recommend listeners of this podcast might check out? Yeah. So I'm as far as Christian music goes, like I try to be varied, but, you know, I still mostly end up going back to rock music. And uh, there is a guy named Mateo. Um, who started this uh, kind of this brand called Christian Rock X. Uh, it's, it's also shown somewhere as just CRX. Um, but he has a bunch of playlists that he keeps regularly curated. He has um, basically his two main things are Instagram posts where he just goes wild with writing about albums and doing like really cool like graphic designing to promote new releases, new singles, uh, album anniversaries, things like that. And then he makes playlists as well. That's kind of a mixture. Like he'll do, I've seen him make playlists that have like every alternative Christian release of the year, just in full, whether it's singles or albums, like compiled into one massive playlist, as well as like smaller, more curated lists. So I hope Christian Rock X is, is the correct way to find that. Um, but he's been kind of my favorite discovery over the past year or two in, in that playlisting world. And then I would just second Noah uh, from Indivision Music, his, He's got some, I think Indie Christian Sound is the name of one of his Spotify profiles where he makes some good playlists. And then his uh, weekly roundups of Christian releases are so like ridiculously thorough. I don't know how he does it. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's, it's, it's incredible. It's a lot of work as well. It's very valuable. So I want to have a, a bit of a conversation with you after I wrap up, but I'm going to say thank you for your time. This was really beneficial. You've got uh, a lot of things that I'm thinking about kind of for the first time uh, since I read it. And I hope our listeners can can engage and put some of these in practice as well. Thanks for your time. Yeah, thank you. So what's one way that you can become a good patron? Well, yikes. I mean, between Maria's article and Chase's article, there's tons to choose from. So instead of just picking one, I picked 10. But I'm, I'm going to integrate a fun website that I learned about from Ellen, who showed me wheel of names.com. I made a spinning wheel that you can reach at bit.ly slash spin gp44. That's bit.ly slash spin gp44. Go to the page, give it a spin, and whatever it lands on, that's your challenge this month. And if you do give it a spin, I'd love to hear about which one you landed on and what you did. Hit me up on Twitter at GoodPatron or email me, goodpatronpodcast at gmail.com, and let me know. Now, beyond this episode's challenge, I've got a couple other things for you to consider. Right now, 
UTR Media, that's the nonprofit ministry that puts out this podcast, is running their annual Build-A-Thon campaign. Please head over to utrmedia.org slash donate and consider a one-time or monthly donation to help keep the lights on and fund way more than just this podcast. Subscribe to or follow the podcast in whatever podcast app you want so you'll hear each episode when it comes out. But that's not enough to catch the campaigns that come and go between episodes. In fact, between last episode and this episode, there were campaigns for a Striper documentary, an Aaron Strumpel campaign for a new album, and a KHA52 campaign. So you'll also want to follow the show on Twitter, at Good Patrons. You'll see what we're tweeting about. Maybe join the crowdfunding Christian music group on Facebook so you can join in on the discussions. There are sure to be plenty more campaigns in the future, and I want to make sure you know all about them. I really hope at least one of these campaigns or artists this episode has connected with you, and you'll follow up and check it out. And I hope these interviews got you thinking more about how we can better support the artists we love. If you end up backing any of the campaigns or have any questions or feedback, or if you just want to give me a heads up about a campaign I should know about, please reach out. I'd love to hear from you. I am excited to keep digging into the topic of how to be a good patron, and I hope I encourage you in your journey from fan to patron. Until next episode, remember, great music doesn't just happen, so get involved. Good Patron Podcast is proud to be a part of UTR Media, an independent, listener-supported, nonprofit ministry in Murfreesboro, Tennessee, and found online at utrmedia.org. Thank you.